Welcome back to Passing Judgment. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Professor Bob Shrum. Bob is the director of USC's Center for the Political Future. He is the Warshaw Chair in Practical Politics at USC, and he is a longtime Democratic strategist. Among other campaigns, he's worked for Kerry Edwards, 2004, and Gore Lieberman in 2000. He has a wonderful book, No Excuses, Concessions of a Serial Campaigner. Welcome, Bob. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Happy to be here. So you've worked as a consultant for many campaigns. What's your number one piece of advice to candidates? Well, that you've got to stay calm. You've got to have a strategy and you have to stick to it. Uh, one thing that's been admirable about the Biden campaign, and there have been a number of admirable things, is they began the primaries with a theory of the case. And the theory of the case ultimately held that people were going to want someone who were they, they were pretty sure could beat Donald Trump and that South Carolina was their firewall. And in fact, they were right in that theory of the case. We did our USC Dornsife poll a year in advance. We asked people, uh, Democrats, whether they wanted uh, a man or a woman, a white person or a person of color, someone with government experience or someone new. They wanted a white man with government experience. Uh, and that was true even of people of color. And Trump was the great driver of that, the desire to beat Trump. So they, they were buffeted uh, tremendously in the early uh, days leading up to the Iowa caucuses, had a bad Iowa, bad Nevada, bad New Hampshire, uh, and never deviated. No backbiting, no stories in the press, went to South Carolina, got take, took care of business, and Super Tuesday just basically swept uh, to the nomination. Uh, and they've had a theory of the case throughout the general election, and they've held to that. Uh, who would have dreamed, by the way, a 77-year-old white guy, and I can say that because I resemble that remark, that a 77-year-old white guy would become an internet sensation in terms of fundraising. You know, a few months ago, the then now ousted campaign manager for Donald Trump said, in terms of finances, we have a billion dollars. We're the Death Star. I think he forgot that in Star Wars, the Death Star ultimately blew up. And that's what's happened here. I mean, they spent the Trump campaign spent eight hundred million dollars before the Republican convention. And then the Biden campaign just vastly outraised them month after month after month. Uh, so I've just heard just before I, we started this podcast that uh, the uh, Trump campaign has canceled a very big media buy in Florida. That can't be a sign that they're confident about Florida because that race is very close. Biden appears to be slightly ahead. I think it's a sign that they are really strapped for cash. Finally, I would say, by the way, that giving in to your candidate all the time and whatever he wants is the worst way to run a campaign or she wants. JFK once said you always had to have two or three people around who were allowed to tell you when you were being a dumb SOB and you had to reward them, not punish them. I don't think Trump has anyone like that. So he's like the flying Dutchman going around the country in Air Force One, holding all these super spreader rallies that I think hurt him, don't help him. They energize his base, but other people look at them and say, he doesn't care about COVID. He's not taking safety precautions. I think there's no one around him who says, this is wrong. I think he basically is the campaign manager and he manages by id and instinct. And he has something to back it up, I would say, unfortunately, because in 2016, I think everybody said 
there's no way you're winning this. And he basically just went with his gut or his id and he ended up winning. People told him, you can't have these conversations with foreign leaders. You might get impeached. He was, but he wasn't removed. And, and I feel like he's proven kind of over and over again, I can get away with some of this. Um, we'll see if it happens again. And I certainly want to pick up on that. But before we do, I love this idea of the theory of the case that you bring up, that you have to, from the beginning, as a candidate, have a theory of the case. Is that what vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris did not have? Yes. In fact, she didn't have a message. She had several messages. And she went from one to the other. Very impressive launch of her campaign in Oakland. But after that, the campaign seemed to lose its way. Uh, that, and I said to people when they were talking with me about who Biden was going to pick that I was almost absolutely certain it would be Kamala Harris. And they would say, yeah, but look, look how she did in the primaries. And I'd say, but she didn't fit the profile, number one, of what Democrats wanted. And number two, she had a message problem. She's not going to have a message problem in the general election. Her message is Joe Biden's message. So, yes, I think that's what happened to her. It was a, it was a diffuse campaign that except for one moment, which actually was a little dubious in that debate with Biden, didn't score with people. She Look, elections are about what the voters think they're about. They're not about what you think they're about as a candidate. And she never managed to make that connection in the primaries. I think she's so far been a very good vice presidential candidate. I hear you say a couple of things, which is you shouldn't surround yourself by yes people. And this is true, you and I can talk about what's happening on the Supreme Court, but it's certainly true of judges as well. This is why I think good judges hire really smart law clerks, but not the law clerks who just agree with them. Small shout out for the judge who I worked for after law school. And that you have to have developed your case, as good lawyers do, at the very beginning. Are there other things where you can look at a campaign and say, these are the biggest mistakes? You have more experienced than almost anyone in the nation at following campaigns and saying, here's what you should do. Are there other big mistakes that you see candidates make where you think, no, this is the death now? Well, it's hard to say this is the death now, especially in a politics as polarized as we live in right now. But you can go into a debate and really blow it. I think most debates, uh, presidential debates are overrated. Uh, in terms of their impact. I mean, uh, there's pretty much of a consensus that John Kerry won all three debates with George W. Bush, but he narrowly lost the election by losing Ohio by a stadium full of voters. The first Kennedy-Nixon debate probably made it possible for Kennedy to actually become president. And I think that the debate this year where Trump either didn't prep or he didn't listen to the people who prepped him, and we did a poll that straddled the debate. So half of it before, half of it after. And he really hurt himself in that debate, not just in terms of vote preference, but in terms of what people thought of him. Was he fit to be president? Did he have a command of the issues? Uh, and he hurt himself particularly, and he keeps doing this on the trail with suburban women who voted for him last time, suburban white women. And by the way, he talks about women, treats women, attacks Leslie Stahl, attacks the moderators of every debate, uh, if they happen to be a woman. Uh, you know, he, he just drives voters away. Well, and this goes back to what you said before, which is that he's going with his id 
Uh, he's going with his gut and there's probably not a ton of people around him saying, stop this train. And that certainly is what I saw in the first debate, which is, I think that's the real Donald Trump. He was, he was a bully and we've seen him do that before. Now, can you win an election based on the debates or can you just kind of falter based on what happens in a debate? Well, well I would say JFK, uh, Nixon was running on experience counts and I've been vice president and Kennedy came into that first debate, gave a commanding performance. Nixon treated it like a high school or college debate where you were refuting point by point. Kennedy treated it as a way to talk to the country and to set big themes. And so I think that without that debate, Kennedy probably would not have won that election. But most of the time, that doesn't happen. And you, you can have debates that are train wrecks and you can still get elected. I mean, Dan Quayle was annihilated by Lloyd Benson in 1988 in about three sentences. You know, I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. I served with Jack Kennedy. And you're no Jack Kennedy after Quayle compared himself to Kennedy. The Shrum rule, by the way, is don't compare yourself to Kennedy. Don't compare yourself to Reagan if you're a Republican, because they're even larger in memory than they were in reality. But he went on to serve as vice president for four years because George H.W. Bush won the election. So you, you can get destroyed in a debate and you can still, at least for a while, hold on to public life, although he had no serious electoral future after that moment. I love that you have and have earned a shrum rule. So I just, I'm going to put a <laughs> pin in. That is very, very cool. And one more and a big question before we get into this, more of the specifics of the election before us, are there certain attributes that you think somebody has that makes them a good political candidate? It probably a bit of it is being strong enough to surround themselves with people who will say, no, that's not wise. And having the foresight to say, this is why I want to run. But are there other similarities where you say, this is what makes a good candidate? Uh, I think strong people is very important. Ted Kennedy once said to me, we were talking about, he was in the process of hiring somebody. And I said something like, well, you know, I think you're going to get some disagreement from this person. He said, that's fine. He said, I don't have to hire people who always agree with me. I can agree with myself. So you have to have the confidence to go out and get the people around you who can be strong and who have some knowledge of the process. The other thing is, and this word is overused, but can you connect with people? Is there an authenticity? And at a time like this, more than at most times in my lifetime, empathy really matters. You know, when you see Joe Biden with that young man in New Hampshire who stuttered, and Biden talking to him, embracing him, and then putting him on at the Democratic Convention. It was a very powerful moment. And that's authentic. I've known Biden for a long time. That is who he is. So this brings us to President Trump. And I actually want to start, maybe it's not the beginning, but at least it's the middle, which is the 2016 campaign. And we just talked about what makes a good candidate. And we talked about strength and empathy and the ability to connect with voters and I have to say, from my perspective, none of those really, except maybe the ability to connect with voters, ring true for then-candidate Trump. Trump had a message in 2016. It was a message I didn't happen to agree with, but it did connect with voters in those blue-wall, upper-Midwest states in Pennsylvania uh, that went for Trump. 
they went for him very narrowly, but he, he had a message. And it was, you have been left behind by globalization. You've been left behind by the economic recovery. And you know what the real problem is? The real problem is, number one, immigration. And the real problem is, number two, foreign trade. And I'm going to get in there and fix it. He hasn't fixed it. <laughs> I'd, I'd say the trade policies have been a disaster. But he had that message. And he was actually, that was out of his id and his instinct. And he stuck with it. And he drew to a royal flush. If you change 37,000 or 38,000 votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, Hillary Clinton is today president of the United States running for re-election. Uh, he came into this campaign, and trade's not a big issue. And even though he tries to make immigration an issue, you know, if, if you do the kind of health care plan you, you, you want to do, all these immigrants are going to come in here, illegal immigrants and murderers and, and words I wouldn't use, uh, that voters just are totally disconnected from that. They don't care about it. They don't believe him. Now, he does have a hard core. He's got, you know, 40%, 41, 42, maybe he'll get up to 43. Maybe he'll win. Uh, maybe he'll draw to another royal flush. But doing it twice is very difficult. And you said something earlier I wanted to comment on, which was about 2016, because I agree with you that his instincts work there, not because they're so acute, but because they just happen to meet that moment. And Democrats are kind of the neurotic party, as my co-director at the center, Mike Murphy, says all the time. He's now running Republican voters against Trump. And having been through 2016, there's a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder. And people think that somehow or other Donald Trump has some magic bottle that he's going to bring out at the last minute, and it's going to change the trajectory of the campaign. Now, can he win? You know, Nate Silver says he has about a 12% chance of winning, which is not nothing. But every day that goes by that doesn't change what's happening is a day that's really lost for him, especially because as of this morning, 64 million ballots had already been cast and received. Uh, those aren't ones that may be stuck in the U.S. mail. They've been received. And I think that by Election Day, we may have 100 million ballots in. Uh, so he doesn't have much runway left. And the other thing that's happening is that so much of this campaign is now being fought out on what should be Trump's terrain. Uh, Florida, he assumed was going to be his. Georgia, where Joe Biden just appeared and gave a speech in Warm Springs, uh, where FDR had the little White House. Uh, that's now in play. Iowa's in play, and Biden's going there. Texas, improbably, is very close. You know, it would be a miracle if Democrats wanted, if Biden wanted. Uh, but it would also, if he wanted, I think, be a landslide. But that's where the fight is. And Trump is having to go to states to campaign in states like North Carolina that he assumed automatically were going to come to him. So that's the second problem they face, uh, lack of message, the terrain that's being fought on, and what I talked about at the beginning, the resource disadvantage. I, I want to pick up on this issue of the Electoral College. I probably want to end with it. But I all, before that, I want to talk about you You mention President Trump's support. And it seems to me that he has a floor and a ceiling and that he's really always operated in this fairly narrow band. And you already hit on it a little bit, but what is the strategy this time around? You talked about what the 
strategy was in 2016 and how he kind of met that moment. Is he just playing, and I maybe I'll say it in a more kind of pedestrian way because that's how I think about it. Is he just playing to his base? Has he given up on the Obama-Trump voters? Has he given up on the swing voters and he just wants to keep as much of that base as he can? Well, everything uh, he does, and as you watch these rallies day after day, and by the way, I didn't say it earlier, it costs a fortune to move Air Force One around the country. Uh, and the campaign has to pay for it. Uh, but everything he does at those rallies uh, is pitched to the base. And so I have been trying to, because I'm teaching it right now, 20, the 2020 election in real time to 150 students. So I've been trying to divine what his strategy is. And the only one I can come up with is that he wants to absolutely maximize the turnout of white non-college educated voters. Uh, it's he'd have to get them, I think, to astronomical levels, uh, really levels that are unprecedented uh, to, to, to do what he has to do. Uh, and I partly, you know, we, the, 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 he and the Republican Party have backed into a demographic cul-de-sac in in the 1980s. Over 80 percent of the vote cast in presidential campaigns was cast by white people and. 2020, I think that will be under 70%. And the character of the white electorate is changing too. So white non-college educated voters are voting quite differently than white college educated voters who now favor Biden. And there's been an erosion, I think, even as Trump tries to raise the total vote he's going to get in the white non-college educated cohort, there's been an erosion because there are a number, I believe, of non-college educated women who care about health care and who are very worried about what he would do about health care, who may not be telling their husbands or partners, but may go into that booth and vote for Biden. So I just think he has a host of problems. Now, I, I want to emphasize because <laughs> on the Showtime show, The Circus, uh, four years ago, the Sunday before the election, I got on and said, no how, no way not in this universe or any alternative universe, can Donald J. Trump be elected president of the United States? So I'm not doing absolute predictions, but I'm trying to analyze the situation I think he finds himself in. And you listen to him and you can almost sense that he feels pressured too. I mean, when he says today, no votes should be counted after midnight on election day, what is he talking about? We've always counted votes after midnight on election day. Who knows? Maybe he'll find a sympathetic Supreme Court that will help him steal the election. I suspect very strongly that John Roberts would be opposed to that. But John Roberts is no longer the swing vote on the court. And you have to hope that someone like Neil Gorsuch, as conservative as he is, would say, I don't want to put the court in this position. Because to have an illegitimate election that's perceived that way by millions of Americans, and then a Supreme Court that acts like a ward committee or an ideological cult instead of a court. I mean, that would be, I think, an existential threat to the continuing strength of American democracy. And I've seen you post about that. And I have an unpopular and perhaps naive view on this, which I'm happy to hear your thoughts on, which is I actually don't think we can rely on Justice Barrett 
at all to vote in favor of President Trump. Now, of course, we don't know what the facts will be. We don't know what the law is at issue. But I think she cares a lot more about other issues. I think she cares about religious freedom. I think she cares about privacy rights, reproductive rights. I I don't know that she cares that much if President Trump wins. And I think she cares a lot about it looking like she's a real justice. She's a real independent person. And she's not engaged in a quid pro quo. President Trump saying, Justice Barrett, here's your job. And a few weeks later, saying her saying, and President Trump, here's your job. I think she's going to shore up and make sure that she is viewed as someone who cares about the rule of law and that we absolutely can't bank on the idea that she would vote in a way that would be a Republican win. Now, I'll pause here for you to tell me how deeply naive I am on this. From your mouth to God's ear. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, in 2000, an election where I think Al Gore was elected but not inaugurated, I would not have bet that, for example, Sandra Day O'Connor would have sided with the five-person majority in Bush v. Gore. But I think she thought that Bush was probably a lot like his father, and she felt very comfortable with that. She came from a Republican background. And that doesn't mean she explicitly said, gee, I'm going to vote Republican, but it made it easier for her to vote with that five to four majority. I was stunned the other day to see Brett Kavanaugh in uh, this decision on, on, uh, on what you do about ballots that are received postmarked before election day, but received after election day. And he said, yeah, you could ignore them. Uh, Quote Bush v. Gore and cite Bush v. Gore, which the majority in Bush v. Gore explicitly said should never be cited in another Supreme Court opinion. They were only doing it, they claimed, because of exigent circumstances, the, the electoral college had to meet. So Florida had to be decided. And so they were deciding it. I teach the Bush v. Gore decision, and it's very strange to teach a case and just explicitly say, okay, the majority said, don't ever cite us. We're not good precedent. We just have to make this decision. It's really in you know a law school world, it's such a bizarro, upside down, fun house world. And it was surprising to see Justice Kavanaugh um, cite to that decision and I, I don't think ultimately that the courts will, quote unquote, save us. But I'm having, I guess I'm I don't care if they save us, Jessica. <laughs> I just don't want them to doom us. I don't want them to take an election and turn it into a caricature of what democracy should be. I think, as you said, at least Chief Justice John Roberts is so motivated to make sure that the court looks like a court and not a political body, that he cares so much that he will not preside over the Supreme Court that really sounds the death knell for the integrity of the judiciary. But as you said, it's not a five to four court anymore. It's a six to three court. So um, we will have to stay tuned on that one. Now, Back to something that I promised a few minutes ago we would talk about, which is we keep focusing on what's happening in Pennsylvania, what's happening in Florida. You talked about John Kerry losing really because he lost a stadium full of people in Ohio. How much does the Electoral College change the way presidential campaigns are run? Profoundly. Uh, it limits the number, although we broadened the number of states that are in play this year, it limits the number of states. The only reason we're seeing Biden ads, for example, in California, is because they have so much money they're buying national television spots. But normally the campaign is conducted in 17 to 20 states. 
everybody else gets ignored. You know, I think the South Dakotas of this world and the North Dakotas who think the Electoral College works to their advantage are actually wrong. If there were no Electoral College, candidates would have to compete everywhere. They would have to campaign everywhere because then a vote in South Dakota and a vote in California would be one vote. Each voter would be equal. That's not the case today. Uh, and so you go for, you don't go for California. We know what it's going to do. You don't go for South Dakota because we know what it's going to do. You go to the places where it's close and where the electoral college could be determined. Although if we abolish the electoral college, don't you go to where the people are? Don't you basically just go to populated areas and maybe you don't really go to South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming. But Donald Trump would surely come to Los Angeles because there are a lot of people here. And uh, I have no doubt that somebody would say, put on the schedule, you wouldn't go over and over. But if you're in Wisconsin, why not hop over to South Dakota, North Dakota, pick up some votes? So I, I think that would happen. But if we abolish the Electoral College, and people talk about it in a vacuum all the time, I think we would have to establish a national standard of voting, we might even have to separate the presidential ballot from all of the other races so that it would be a little like Britain where, you know, you get a piece of paper and you vote on it. And by the next morning, they know who's won the election uh, and who's the prime minister, uh, unless it's very, very close, in which case they enter into negotiations as in 2010. Otherwise, if you don't have a national standard and you don't have a national ballot, the incentives for cheating become very, very high. And there's not a lot of evidence, as the Brennan Center has pointed out, that there's any voter fraud in America right now. But if you said, we're going to have just a national popular vote, which I'm for, you do have to set up federal standards and safeguards. I really thought that was going to happen at the end of Bush v. Gore, at the end of the 2000 election. I thought, now we're going to finally invest in election administration. But of course, the truth is that we tend to care a lot about election administration sometime around October 31st to the first <laughs> Tuesday. And then, you know, by the time Thanksgiving rolls around, we've all forgotten about it. And well, we have 20 and 30 year old hackable voting machines that are still being used. Yes. And as you point out, that Brennan Center study said under our current system, I just want to emphasize this for our listeners. I think that voter fraud happens at an incidence of 0.0025%. So there are tons of things to worry about when it comes to this election. Active voter fraud or undermining the integrity of our voter systems in that way is not one of them. But back to one last question about the presidential election. Is this really just about whether or not you're going to vote for President Trump or against President Trump? Or are there really two people running? Meaning, it seems to me that this whole question has really become, we didn't so much pick Joe Biden, we picked the person, as you said in the beginning, who we thought could beat Trump. So is this just a referendum on President Trump? It is primarily a referendum. But what has happened from the Democratic Convention on is uh, the Biden campaign has done a very good job of making sure the country knows more and more about Joe Biden, about who he is, where he came from, what his character is like. There have been moments that have manifested that character. I talked about it earlier. So that now, if you look in some of the battleground states, uh, he is net favorable by you know, a fair margin. And nationally, he's net favorable, while uh, Trump has a 60% unfavorable rating. So 
yes, it's fundamentally a referendum, but Biden has done a very good job, I think, of making himself seem, and I'll borrow something I said about 2016, himself seem the man for this moment, for 2020. We'll see how it turns out, but that's how it looks to me today. I want to switch gears as we're winding down the interview and ask you about something you posted on social media. The end of your post was, let fascism arise never again. And fascism is a word we hear a lot, and I think it's misused at times. Can you explain to us what it means and if you think we're there? I don't think we're there. Uh, And the reason I posted that was because I retweet every tweet from the Auschwitz Foundation, uh, which puts out the most moving and heartbreaking pictures of people who were taken to the concentration camps. Very few survived, uh, some of them very young children. And it puts a human face on the number six million. and so I just, as an obligation, I feel a sense of obligation, actually, to, to give these people, to do my little part to give these people some memory. So that's what I mean by let fascism never arise again. That's what motivated me to say that. I do think that we are witnessing at the hands of Donald Trump the erosion of our institutions. He's taken away the civil service protections of the CDC. So after the election, he could fire Dr. Fauci, which I have no doubt he would. If he, if he wins, he might do it anyway. He wants to fire the head of the FBI. He wants to fire the Secretary of Defense because he said, no, Mr. President, I do not think we should be sending U.S. troops into American cities, which, as you know, violates the Posse Comitatus Act unless there is an insurrection going on in the country, and Trump wants to say there's an insurrection going on in the country. So I don't use the term fascism lightly. I was actually using it about a fascist regime uh, that murdered uh, six million people in concentration camps, and because of starting World War II was probably primarily responsible for the death of about 30 million people. I'm glad that you retweet and I'm glad that you comment sometimes and that it's, I think what you said was um, you had to take a moment and think about it. And you had to remind us all these are people and this is what can happen. And this is not ancient history. Uh, This is very real and uh, very direct and there's no good transition from that. So I want to ask you, before we let you go, uh, you said that you know Joe Biden and that you know him well. What can we, what should we know about him that we can't see from the rallies, from the debates? What's one thing that you want listeners to take away? Actually, what you see is what you get. This is not a contrivance. It's not a construct for a campaign. He is a person who cares about ordinary folks, who has sympathy for the pain that people go through because he's been through a lot himself and who I think, even if you disagree with him uh, on issues, will make a lot of people proud if he's elected president of the United States. He's a really decent human being. That would be a nice change of pace. Uh, Bob Shrum, we learned a lot from you. And now as loyal listeners of the podcast know, we have three hopefully fun questions to learn a little bit more about you. So- (laughs) Here we go. Question number one, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? 
you know, I would probably, I would probably want to invite JFK because I spent, you know, uh, 30 years uh, working first as a speechwriter and press secretary, and then as a consultant for Ted Kennedy. And I knew him very well. And, and he was one of my close friends. And I have an enormous admiration for how JFK sparked a sense in the 1960s that we could change the world, that the world could be different, the world could be better. I'm not even sure he fully understood when he said, ask not what your country can do for you, the forces that he was helping to let loose. Uh, but, you know, certainly in my lifetime, it would be him. If it wasn't him, it would be Martin Luther King. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, we, we had a, and, and, you know, if you think about the 60s, and that's when I grew up, to date myself, to have JFK, Martin Luther King, RFK. And by the way, Lyndon Johnson was a terrific president until he got sucked in or dove into Vietnam because as he told Richard Russell, I'm not going to be the first American president to lose a war. Uh, instead, what he did was lose his presidency and end up with a very mixed legacy. Uh, but we had extraordinary people. And we also, you think about, you know, I'm, this is too long an answer to a short question. But you think about the folks who started the gay rights movement, people like my friend David Mixner. You think about all those women who stood up and said, it's time for us to be heard. It's time for us to have our chance. I Actually, what I'd like to do is have a big dinner party, 12 people, and invite a whole selection of those folks who really, I think, made the world we live in now, if we're able to keep it. A republic, if you can keep it. Yeah. Next question. You're going to be stranded on a desert island, and you can bring one meal. What is it? Macaroni and cheese. You get one superpower for an hour. What is that superpower? The capacity to end war. Bob Shrum, thank you so much for passing judgment with us. You can find Bob on Twitter at Bob Shrum, all one word. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thanks so much to the listeners. Thank you again so much to Professor Bob Shrum. He really gave us a masterclass in politics, political science, and political campaigns. Take care, everybody. Vote. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.